Chapter 38, Part 1 of History of Philosophy This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Florence History of Philosophy by William Turner Chapter 38, St. Thomas of Aquin Life St. Thomas, surnamed the Angelic Doctor, belonged to the noble family of Aquino, which was related to the imperial family and to the royal houses of Aragon, Sicily and France. His father was Count of Aquino, Belcastro and Roccasecca. In the fortress at Roccasecca, our saint was born in the year 1224 or 1225. When five years old, he was sent to the monastery of Monte Cassino, where his uncle Sinbald ruled as abbot. There, in the midst of the struggles between the papacy and the empire, struggles in which the abbot, as feudal lord of a large province, was obliged to take sides, the monks continued to teach and to cultivate learning, and there, according to tradition, the young Thomas began to occupy his mind with the question, quid est deus? He studied grammar, poetry, rhetoric, logic, and perhaps the elements of philosophy. In 1236, Sinbald died, and shortly after that event, the community of Monte Cassino was broken up for a time, and St. Thomas returned to his father's castle. After a brief sojourn at home, St. Thomas was sent to the University of Naples. The change from Monte Cassino to the University was an important crisis in the life of our saint. The university was at that time dominated by the influence of Frederick II, an influence which was hostile to religion, or at least to the papacy and to the mendicant orders. The city, if we are to believe contemporary chroniclers, was a veritable hotbed of irreligion and licentiousness. St. Thomas, uninfluenced by these surroundings, continued to devote himself to his studies having for masters Martinus in grammar and Petrus Hibernus in natural science. In quorum scholis, says Tocco, tam lucalenti coipit esse igeni et perspicacis intelligentia ut altius et profundius et clarus alius auditor, repeteret quam a suis doctoribus adiviset. In 1243, Thomas entered the order of St. Dominic. His mother, Theodora, having looked forward to another career for her son, threw every obstacle in the way of his entering the order of preachers. She carried her opposition so far as to imprison him in the fortress of San Giovanni. Toward the end of the second year of his imprisonment, Thomas made his escape, and, the opposition on the part of his relatives having ceased, he was allowed to proceed to Paris in the company of John of Germany. He does not seem to have tarried at Paris for any length of time, but have gone at once to Cologne, where Albert was teaching. This was in 1244 or 1245. Albert perceived at once the extraordinary talents of his pupil, and when Thomas's fellow students, failing to detect the intellectual greatness 
hidden under an extreme modesty of manner, surnamed him the dumb ox. Albert foretold the future renown of his pupil. Nos vocamus istum bovin mutum. Sed ipse adhuc talam dabit indoctrina mugitum. Quod in toto mundo sonabit. Tocco describes the student Thomas as follows. Coipit miro modo taciturnus, essay in silentio. In studio, assidus. In oratione devotus. Interius colligans, in memorio, quod postmodum, effunderet in doctrina. Soon after his arrival at Cologne, Thomas was sent to Paris in company with Albert. There they remained until 1248. When in 1248 Albert was recalled to Cologne, it was decided that his illustrious pupil should once more accompany him and continue to study under his direction. In 1251 or 1252, by order of the General of the Dominicans, Thomas repaired to Paris, where he undertook the task of expanding the books of sentences in 1256, this is the most probable date, St. Thomas received the degree of master and was placed at the head of the school at St. James as Regens Primarius. It is probable, however, that on account of the conflict between the mendicants and the seculars, the solemn inceptio did not take place until 1257. Mention has already been made of the part which St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas took in the controversy arising out of this dispute, and in the efforts of the mendicants to secure a favourable decision from Rome. While fulfilling his task as bachelor, or assistant professor, St. Thomas composed his commentaries on the books of sentences. After his promotion to the duties of Master of Sacred Science, he continued to teach and write, taking up special points treated in elementary fashion by the bachelor who taught under his direction, and devoting himself to the thorough discussion of each doctrine in all its bearings. His fame as a teacher rapidly spread throughout Europe, and, in obedience to the commands of his superiors, he taught successively at Rome, Bologna, Viterbo, Perugia and Naples. In his lectures, as well as in his writings, St Thomas was actuated by a twofold purpose. He strove first to defend the truth against the attacks of its enemies, and secondly, to build up a system of theology and philosophy. The Summa Contra Gentilis and the Summa Theologica are proof of his ability both as an apologist and as a constructive thinker. The former work, begun at Paris about the year 1257 and completed sometime between the years 1261 and 1264, was undertaken at the request of St. Raymond of Penafort for the purpose of defending Catholic truth against the Arabian pantheists and their followers. The latter work was begun at Bologna about the year 1271. It is St. Thomas's greatest work, his last and most important contribution to Christian theology and philosophy. For, though the work is entitled Summa Theologica, and is, in fact, a summary of Catholic theology. It is also a summary of philosophy. It begins with the question of the existence of God, treats of the attributes of God, 
traces the process of things from God and the return of man to God through Christ by means of the sacraments which Christ instituted. It treats, therefore, of the creation and government of the universe, of the origin and nature of man, of human destiny, of virtues, vices and laws, of all the great problems of speculative and practical philosophy. It is the key to the thought of St Thomas. It contains the views of his more mature years, and whenever discrepancies occur between the doctrines of the Summa and the views expressed in his earlier works, the Summa is always to be taken as the embodiment of the mind of St Thomas. During his career as professor, St Thomas composed also the Questiones Disputata and the Quadliberta. When a problem arising out of the interpretation of Aristotle or of the Lombard was so complicated that its discussion would occupy too much space in the scholastic commentary, or was so difficult as to puzzle the bachelor, whose duty it was to expound the text of Aristotle or of the Lombard, it was made the subject of a special treatise by the master, and such treatises were called Questiones Disputata. The Quadliberta were answers to questions put to the master by pupils or by outsiders. When, therefore, we find the following among the questions answered by St. Thomas, did St. Peter sin mortally when he denied Christ? Does a crusader who was returning from the Holy Land die a better death than one who is going thither? Do the damned rejoice at the sufferings of their enemies? We should admire the gentle forbearance with which he strove to remove the difficulties that lay in the way of minds less gifted than his. After the completion of the first and second parts of the Summa Theologica, St. Thomas took up his abode at the convent of his order in Naples, and there devoted himself to the completion of the third part. At the end of a year and a half, having reached the ninetieth question, he felt that he could proceed no farther with the work, and when his faithful friend Reginald urged him to continue, he answered in all simplicity, Known possum. In obedience, however, to the command of Gregory X, he set out for Lyon at the beginning of the year 1274 in order to attend the council that was being held in that city. He fell sick on the way, and when the Cistercian monks of Fossanuovo, near Maenza, invited him to their cloister, he accepted their invitation. There he spent the last days of his life among the sons of St. Benedict, whose brethren at Monte Cassino had watched over his early education, and there, on March the 7th, he died while expounding the Canticle of Canticles. Character Contemporary biographers and the witnesses, whose depositions are to be found in the Acts of Canonization, bear testimony to the exalted sanctity of the angelic doctor. The Lange Lingua, the Lauda Sion, and the prayers which he composed for the office of the Blessed Sacrament testify to his great piety. Every page of his philosophical and theological works reveals the author's single-minded devotion to truth, his courtesy towards his opponents, and his extraordinary grasp of the great principles of scholastic philosophy and theology. Tocco describes him as 
Magnus incorpore et recti statuerae, cry rectitudine animae, respondet, animum nullo sensualis, passio perturbabat, nullius re preambat, affectio temporalis, nec ullius honoris, inflabit ambitio, miramodo contemplativus, et colestibus deditus, sources. The principal editions of the works of St. Thomas are the following. The Roman edition of 1570, known as the edition of Pius V, the Venetian edition of 1592, the Paris edition of 1660, the Parma edition of 1852, and the Leonine edition, begun by the Dominicans at Rome in 1882 by order of Leo XIII. The works of St. Thomas may be grouped as follows. 1. Commentaries on the works of Aristotle. 2. Commentaries on the books of sentences. 3. Exegetical works, i.e. commentaries on the scriptures and collections of the opinions of patristic exponents of the text, Cantona Aurea. 4. Commentaries on the Pseudo-Dionysian treatise, De Divinis Nominibus, and on the Boethian treatises, De Hebdon Mardibus, and De Trinitate. 5. Summa Contra Gentiles, Summa Theologica, Questiones Disputata, Opuscula, and Quod Liberta. On the question of the genuineness of the works ascribed to St. Thomas, of the Dissertatio Critica by De Rubius, which is prefixed to the Leonine and other editions, Philosophy of St. Thomas In treating of the philosophical system of St. Thomas, it will be found convenient to consider 1. St. Thomas's notion of science, doctrine of the interrelation of sciences, doctrine of universals, theory of knowledge, 2. Logic, 3. Anthropology, 4. Cosmology, 5. Metaphysics, including natural theology, and 6. Moral and political doctrines. 1. Notion of science, etc. a. Science is the knowledge of things through their causes. Scientific knowledge differs from knowledge in general in this, that it gives the cause, or wherefore, of a phenomenon or event. It is, therefore, defined as a knowledge of principles, for when we define science as a knowledge through causes, we mean primarily those intrinsic causes or principles which constitute the unalterable natures of things and underlie their external shifting sense-perceived qualities. And since it is on the unalterable nature of things that laws are based, science may be defined as the knowledge of laws. It is concerned with what is changeable and contingent, insofar as the changeable and contingent contains the necessary and universal, which is the true object of scientific knowledge, b. Faith and reason. Intimately associated with the notion of science is the notion of truth. Truth is defined as ad aequatio re et intellectus. Now God is the source of all truth. He communicates it to us directly by revelation, and indirectly by giving us the power by which we acquire it. Science acquired in the former manner would be divine. 
while the science which we ourselves derive from experience and reason is human. Theology is partly divine and partly human. It is divine in its origin, for it starts with revealed truths as principles, and it is human in the course of its development, for it proceeds from premise to conclusion by the aid of reason. The distinction between divine science and human science is not a distinction of material objects, that is, of the truths with which each is concerned, but rather a distinction of formal objects, that is, of the point of view from which the same truths are studied in each science. The difference between theology and philosophy does not consist in the fact that theology treats of God, for philosophy also treats of God and divine truths. The distinction consists rather in this, that theology views truth in the light of divine revelation, while philosophy views truth in the light of human reason. This is the first and broadest distinction between theology and philosophy. There are truths which belong exclusively to theology. There are truths which belong properly to philosophy. And there are truths which are common to both sciences. The truths which belong exclusively to theology are the mysteries of faith, such as the Incarnation and the Trinity, which the human mind can neither demonstrate nor comprehend. These we know on the authority of God who revealed them. The truths which belong exclusively to philosophy are natural truths of the lower order, that is, truths which have no bearing on man's destiny or on his relations with God. The truths which belong to both sciences are natural truths of the higher order, such as the existence of God. These, on account of the important relation which they bear to supernatural truth, are called the preambula fedii. They come within the scope and power of natural reason, and are therefore natural. Nevertheless, they are proposed for our belief, for though a knowledge of them is possible to all men, it is in point of fact attained only by a few. Our porcus et per lungum tempus, et cum admixtione multorum errorum. Considering on the one hand the vital importance of these truths, and on the other hand, the difficulty of attaining a knowledge of them. It seems natural and fitting that God in his goodness should propose them for our belief. Now, whether we consider the truths which belong exclusively to theology or those which are common to theology and philosophy, we realise that the science which studies both classes of truths in the light of revelation and the science which studies the latter class of truths in the light of reason are distinct sciences. But while it is certain that theology and philosophy are distinct, it is no less certain that they are in complete harmony with one another. Ea quae ex revelatione divina per fidem tenenter non possunt naturali cognitioni esse contraria. This principle, which may be said to be implied in every system of Christian speculation, is explicitly proved by the following consideration. God is the author of all knowledge, natural as well as revealed. It is, therefore, he who teaches us, not only when, by means of the revelation, which he has vouchsafed to grant us, we attain the knowledge of truth in the supernatural order, but also when, by the natural powers, which also are his gift, 
we discover truth in the natural order. Now it is impossible that God should contradict himself. It is, therefore, impossible that there should exist a contradiction between natural truth and truth of the supernatural order. But this is not all. Not only does faith not contradict reason, it strengthens and supplements reason. Faith introduces us into a new world of truth, into a world where everything is novel and strange, but where, nevertheless, an intelligent ruler reigns, where, consequently, we find that everything obeys the inexorable laws of thought which rule the natural world, for a mystery is not a contradiction. Thus is the horizon of noble truth enlarged by revelation, and faith becomes the complement of reason. St. Thomas was fully convinced of the limitations of human thought. He did not, it is true, draw the limits of thought so closely as Mansell and Spencer have done. He possessed more confidence than they in the power of the human mind to attain truth. Still, he recognised the principle that the human mind, however high it may soar, must some time or other reach a level beyond which it cannot rise and at which all natural knowledge ends. He differed, however, from the agnostic, and the difference is radical, in this, that well beyond the region of knowledge, the modern philosopher places the region of nescience. St. Thomas taught that where science ends, faith begins, and that faith is a kind of knowledge. Faith is the assent to truth on account of the authority of God. Assented autumn intellectus, aliqui duplicitaire, Una modo quia ad hoc moviter, ad ipso objecto, quod es per sipsum, cognitum, sucut partet, in primus principis, quorum est intellectus, vel per alid, cognitum, sicut partet inclusionibus, quorum est scientia, alio modo intellectus assentit aliqui, non quia sufficiente moviter ab objecto proprio, sed per quamdam electionem voluntari declinans in unum partem, et si quidem hoc sit cum dubitatione et formidine alterius partis erit opinio, si autem sit cum cecitudine absque tale formidine erit fides, Faith, therefore, in so far as it depends on the will, is meritorious, while in so far as it is a firm assent and excludes doubt, it adds to our knowledge. Knowledge, coextensive with reality, is divided into the realm of science and the realm of faith, and these realms are continuous. Moreover, all faith is radically reasonable, for belief rests on the authority of God and reason tells us that God can neither deceive nor be deceived. Decendum quod ea quae subsunt fedie duplicate considerare possunt. Uno modo, in speciali, et sic non possunt, esse simul visa et credita. Alio modo, in generali, scilicet subcommuni ratione credibilis et sic sunt visa ab eo qui credit, non enem crederet, nisi videret, ea esse credenda. From the foregoing principles, 
it follows that science can aid faith, one, by furnishing the motives of credibility and by establishing the preambles of faith, two, by supplying analogies which enable us to represent to ourselves truths of the supernatural order, three, by solving the objections which the opponents of faith urge against supernatural truth. St. Thomas subscribed to the twofold principle of scholasticism, credo ut intelligam, intelligo ut credam. St. Thomas's doctrine concerning the relations between revelation and reason may be summed up in the propositions, one, the domain of faith is distinct from the domain of reason, two, the former is a continuation of the latter. Here we find expressed the thought which agitated the minds of the schoolmen during the first two periods of scholasticism. The thought, namely, that revelation is reasonable and that reason is divine. This thought, which was held in solution in every system of scholasticism, from the extreme mysticism of Erigena to the extreme rationalism of Abelard, both of whom, though for different reasons, identified theology with philosophy, is now at last crystallised, and the Protestant as well as the Catholic apologist of Christianity will today acknowledge that nowhere can there be found a better statement of the relation between revelation and reason than in the principles formulated by St. Thomas. The doctrine of St. Thomas on this point is of interest not merely to the apologist but also to the philosopher. For every effort of philosophical construction is an effort at establishing continuity. The Greeks, while they distinguished mind and matter, taught that there exists no antagonism between them, and it was in a similar spirit of constructive synthesis that St. Thomas, while clearly distinguishing the province of theology from that of philosophy, established once for all the continuity of the supernatural with the natural, of revelation with reason, it is this aspect of the question that gives it its importance in the history of philosophy. C. Division of Sciences St. Thomas divides the sciences in accordance with Aristotle's scheme of classification into physical, mathematical and metaphysical. All science is abstraction, that is, separation or analysis, of the complex totality of phenomena. The physical, mathematical and metaphysical sciences represent ascending grades of abstraction. d. Doctrine of universals. All science is concerned with the abstract and therefore with the universal. Of singular things, in so far as they are singular, there is no science. But the universal, though abstract, is real. St. Thomas regards the nominalist denial of the reality of universals as a denial of the reality of all science. He does not, however, agree with the Platonic realists who teach that the universal exists outside the mind as a universal, in the same way as it exists in the mind. The universal existed ante rem in the mind of God as exemplar cause. It exists post rem in the human mind as an idea or image extracted from concrete things, and it exists in re as the essence or quiddity of things, but the universal in re is not formally universal, 
the mind, reflecting that the universal quiddity is predicable of many, invests this quiddity with the formal aspect of universality. Quod est commune multus, non est aliquid, praeter multa nisi sola ratione, cum dicitur universale, abstractum, duo intelligunter, scilicet ipsa natura re, et abstractio, su universalitas, ipsa igitur natura re, qui accidit, vel intelligi, vel abstrahi, vel intentio, universalitatis, non est nisi in singularibus, sed hoc ipsum, quod est intelligi, vel abstrahi, vel intentio universalitas, est in intellectu. Licit natura generis, et speciae numquam sit nisi in his individuis. Intelligit tamen intellectus, naturam speciae et generis, non intelligendo. Principia individuantia, ed hoc est intelligere universalia. Universalia, secundum quod sunt universalia, non sunt nisi in anima, ipsae autum naturae, quibus accidit, intentio universalitatis, sunt in rebus. The sciences, therefore, are real, because the universal is real. The sciences, however, differ in many respects. The same method is not to be employed in different sciences, neither is the same certitude to be sought in each. Ad hominem bene, disciplinatum, id est, bene instructum, pertinet ut tantum, cercitudinis quarat, in unaquaque materia, quantum natura re patita. Theology rests on the authority of revelation. In the other sciences, the principal means of arriving at truth is the use of our own reason and the employment of induction or deduction. According to the nature of the science, authority holds a very unimportant place. Studium sapientiae non est ad hoc quod, sciator quid homines censorint, sed qualiter se habiat veritas rerum. St. Thomas maintains that in matters scientific, the argument from authority is the weakest of all arguments, and thus condemns those who would solve the problems of philosophy by an appeal to the works of Aristotle or of some other master. C. Theory of Knowledge St. Thomas's theory of knowledge is conditioned by his psychological doctrines. It is possible, however, to describe his epistemological doctrines in general terms without entering for the present into an account of his psychological system. All knowledge begins with sense knowledge. The senses, the intellectual faculties, and the authority of others are the sources of our knowledge, and, in normal conditions, they are reliable sources. With respect to the senses, St. Thomas, following Aristotle, distinguishes four classes of objects, the sensibile per se, the sensibile per accidens, the sensibile propium, and the sensibile commune. The sensibilia propria are colour, taste, sound, etc., and the sensibilia communia are size, motion, shape, etc. 
The former exist potentially in the object, independently of the sense. Actually, however, taste, for example, does not exist except when it is perceived. But while St. Thomas makes this concession to idealism, he maintains, in opposition to the fundamental tenet of the idealists, that what we first perceive is not the mental process which takes place within us, but the physical counterpart of that process which exists in the world outside. He is an advocate, a presentative or immediate, as opposed to representative or immediate perception. He teaches that the senses are in immediate contact with the object, as far as consciousness is concerned, although, as we shall see, he holds that between the senses and the object there are certain media of communication, species sensibiles, which do not appear in direct consciousness. Quidam possuerunt, quod sensus non setit, nisi passionem sui organi, sed haec opinio manifeste, apparat falsa. Specie secundario, estid quod intelligator, id quod intelligator primo est res. He explains the illusions of sense by referring them to one or other of the following causes. 1. The sense organ is not in its normal condition. 2. It is a question of a sensibile per accidens, not of a sensibile per se. With regard to the sensibilia communia, St. Thomas does not realise the important part played by interpretation in processes which are apparently cases of intuitive perception. He admits, however, the fact that interpretation plays a part in these processes. Nacere sensibilium, qualitatum, cognoscere, non est sensus, sed intellectus. Intellectual knowledge is derived from sense knowledge. The intellect, by its immaterial energy, separates or puts aside all the material conditions of the sense image, leaving the immutable universal element which represents itself on the mind as an immaterial idea. The process is one of abstraction or separation. If, then, sense knowledge is a source of truth, intellectual knowledge is also a source of truth, for the mind adds nothing to the sense image. It merely brings to light the intellectual element therein contained. But, though it is customary to speak of the truth of the senses and of the truth of the act by which the intellect abstracts universal ideas, yet truth full-fledged, so to say, is not found except in judgment and reasoning. Now we form a judgment by virtue of an innate power of the mind, by what may be called a natural sensitiveness to the light of evidence, and propositions, as they present themselves to us, are evident either immediately or through the medium of other and more evident propositions. In this way, by the power of judgment, we arrive at a knowledge of first principles and at a knowledge of conclusions which, when organised, is properly called science. But what is knowledge? St. Thomas describes it as a vital process in which the subject is rendered, like the object, by a process of information. Omnis cognitio, fit per assimilationem, cognoscentis et cogniti, 
he likens it to the process by which the seal impresses its form on the wax. The object, whether it be composed of matter and form, or be pure form, is what is by virtue of the form. Now, when the object becomes known, it impresses its form on the mind, causing the mind not to be the object, but to know the object. Moreover, in the act of knowledge, subject and object become one in the ideal order, an expression which means merely that the object becomes known by us, and we become knowing the object. Beyond these somewhat general expressions, St. Thomas does not attempt to describe the nature of knowledge, realising, perhaps, the impossibility of describing knowledge in terms more elementary than the term knowledge itself. 2. Logic In logic, St. Thomas did not make any notable addition to the doctrine of Aristotle. The Aposculum, entitled Summa Totius Logicae, which was ascribed to St. Thomas, is the work of some disciple of the saint, perhaps of Hervé of Nedelec, died 1323. It is a compendium of the treatises which form the body of Aristotelian logical doctrine. 3. Anthropology The central doctrine in St. Thomas's teaching concerning man is that of the substantial union of soul and body. Body and soul are co-principles of the substantial unit which is man. They are united as matter and form. Complete substantial nature belongs neither to the soul alone, nor to the body alone, but to the compound of both. It is the compound which is and acts. It is by virtue of the soul that man is a rational being, a substance, a being. It is by virtue of the soul that the body has whatever it possesses. But just as the body requires the soul in order to be what it is, and to move and live, the soul requires the body for its natural being and operation. It is true that the soul is superior to matter, that in the highest operations of the mind it is intrinsically independent of the body, and that it is capable of surviving the body. But it is none the less true that there is no operation of the soul, however high, in which the body has not its share, and that after its separation from the body, the soul is, as it were, in an unnatural state, until it is reunited with the body after the body's resurrection. The soul is defined as primum principium, vitae in his quae, apud nos vivant, and life is defined as self-originating motion. Iliud enim propriae, vivere dicimus, quod in sipso habet, principium motus vel operationis cujuscumque. Thus, Although the eye, the heart, etc., are principles of vital functions, they are not the radical principles of those functions. For if these, as bodies, were the first principles of life, all bodies would be endowed with life. The soul is, therefore, the radical principle of all vital functions. Since life is the power of self-motion, or, as we should say, the power of adaptation, Living beings are arranged in the scale of ascending perfection, according to the degree in which they possess the power of self-motion. In this way, St. Thomas is led to distinguish plant life, animal life and intellectual life, and to this distinction corresponds the distinction of vegetative soul, sensitive soul and rational soul. All life is a triumph of form over matter, 
of activity over inertia, of initiative force over indeterminateness, and the greater the triumph, the higher the form of life. The soul, then, and by soul is meant not merely mind, but the principle of all vital activity, is united substantially with the body. The union is no mere accidental union, as Plato taught, for consciousness tells us that it is the same substance which thinks and speaks and moves and eats. Neither are there forms intermediate between soul and body, as the Neoplatonists taught, for although there is no quantitative contact between soul and body, there is the contact of immediate action and reaction, contactus virtuitis, as the facts of consciousness prove. Thus does St. Thomas, taking his stand on the empirical principles of consciousness, simplify the problems of epistemology by regarding man as the blending of what in modern epistemology would be called self and not self, and by refusing to look upon subject and object as separated by that chasm, which every epistemologist since the days of Descartes has striven in vain to span. The soul is one, inextended, immaterial. Its immateriality is proved by the fact that in its intellectual operations it rises above all material conditions. It is present in every part of the body, although it does not exercise all its functions in each part of the body. It is present, totalitate, essentiae, but not totalitate, virtutis. But, though the soul is one, it has several faculties or immediate principles of action. In the Summa Theologica, the necessity of admitting the existence of faculties of the soul is proved by metaphysical reasons. In De Spiritualibus Creatoris, the same conclusion is reached from considerations of a psychological nature. The faculties of the soul are 1. Locomotive, 2. Vegetative, or nutritive, 3. Cognitive, sensitive, 4. Cognitive, intellectual, and 5. Appetitive, which includes sensitive appetite and rational appetite or will. This division is expressly attributed to Aristotle. All the faculties of the soul are vital, and their operations are imminent. Some, however, are wholly dependent on states of the organism, while others are immaterial, that is, independent of bodily states, or more generally, of all the conditions of matter. To this class belong the intellectual faculties. St. Thomas, it is true, admits that, as Aristotle taught, there is nothing in the intellect which did not come through the senses. Nevertheless, he maintains, and in this he is true to Aristotelian principles, that there is an essential distinction between sense and intellect. The intellect is incorporeal. A because we can know incorporeal things. Nihil agit nisi secundum suam speciem, ea quod forma est principium agendi in uniquoque. Si igitur intellectus sit corpus, actio aegis ordinem corporum non exidit, non igitur intelliget nisi corpora, hoc autem partet esse falsum, 
Intelligimus, enim multa quae, non sunt corpora. Intellectus, igitur, non est corpus. B. Because of our power of reflection. Nullius corporis actio, reflectitur, supra agentem. Intellectus, autum, supra sipsum, agendo, reflected. Intelligit autum sipsum, non solum secundum partem. Sed secundum totum, non est igitur corpus. C. Because of the universality and necessity which the idea possesses. Proprio operatio hominis, in quantum hujus modi est intelligere. Perhanc enem differt abrutis. Intelligere autum est universalium et incorruptibilium in quantum hujus modi. The intellect, although immaterial and therefore intrinsically independent of the body, depends on the body extrinsically, and as it were accidentally. For the soul, being the weakest and most imperfect of spiritual substances, being in fact substantially incomplete without the body, cannot exercise its intellectual functions without the cooperation of the bodily senses. Having no innate ideas, it must obtain the matter of thought from the world outside. The senses are, therefore, the channels of communication between the soul and the objects of knowledge. This extrinsic or accidental dependence of intellect upon sense explains the phenomenon of mental fatigue. Si vero in intelligendo, fatigator corpus, hoc est per accidens, in quantum intellectus indiget, operationem virium, sensitivarum, per quais a, phantasmata, priparentor. Intellect, therefore, while it transcends the world of sense, is accompanied in all its operations by bodily states, to which the operations of the intellect are correlated. St. Thomas is as careful to avoid the ultra-spiritualism of those who deny all interaction or correlation between the acts of the intellect and the organism, as he is to avoid the materialism of those who make the acts of the intellect depend intrinsically on material conditions. His doctrine on this point, while it in no way compromises the spiritual and immaterial nature of the principle of pure thought, leaves full scope to empirical psychology and to psychological investigation. From the distinction between intellect and sense, St. Thomas infers the conclusion that the soul is immaterial. It is a principle of scholastic philosophy that action is, so to speak, a measure of existence. Agere sequitur esse. The effect cannot be greater than the sum of its causes. If, therefore, the intellect in the processes of pure thought, transcends all material conditions, it follows that the soul, which is the radical principle of such processes, is itself immaterial. Sic igitur ex operatione animae humani modus, esse ipsius, cognosci potest, in quantum enim habit, operationem materialia, transcendentum, Esse sum es supra corpus elevatum, non dependens ab eo.
the immortality of the soul follows from its immateriality. The proofs of immortality, although differently enunciated in different portions of the writing of St. Thomas, may be said to converge on one line of argument. The soul is immaterial, therefore it is naturally incorruptible. For instance, in the Quaestio Disputata de Anima, St. Thomas argues that a compound is subject to corruption, per se, by the loss of the form which gives it being, while a form, although incorruptible per se, may be corruptible per accidens. That is to say, it is liable to destruction, if it is merely that by which the compound is, and if it has no being independently of the compound. Now the soul is a form, and therefore it is not corruptible per se. It is a form independent of the body, as to its highest operations, and therefore it is independent of the body, as to its being. Consequently, it is not corruptible, per accidens. Therefore, neither per se, nor per accidens, is the soul subject to corruption. Towards the end of the article, in which the foregoing argument is enunciated, St. Thomas shows that all who denied the natural immortality of the soul did so either, one, because they held that the soul is a material substance, or two, because they held that the soul is intrinsically dependent on matter, even in its intellectual operations, or three, because they held that the principle of intellectual knowledge is not a faculty of the individual soul, but something separate, intellectus separatus, which is immortal, while the individual soul is corruptible. The argument is repeated in Contra Gentiles 2, 55. In 2.79 of the same work, the form of the argument is slightly changed. The soul is perfected by knowledge and virtue. Now all knowledge and all virtue are conditioned by a certain degree of separation from matter. Every idea that we acquire, every act of virtue that we perform, lifts us above the material conditions of life and adds to the perfection of the soul. Death, therefore, which is a complete separation of the soul from matter, perfects rather than destroys the soul. End of chapter 38, part 1